You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I remember reading this report in Science or Discover, I think, that's always stuck with me. It was a report about the slow, lurching discovery of a public health crisis around the eastern seaboard in the early 90s. It was, as I recalled it, a perfect story for the constant. So I started researching, and pretty quickly I realized that the story as I remembered it was not the story. Not the whole story, at least. There were claims and counterclaims, scientists accusing other scientists of screwing up, and those scientists accusing the ones who accused them of being in the can for corrupt interests, and boy, it was exciting. This little story I half-remembered was turning out to be a big, huge, sprawling epic. But then, my heart fell. It was too big. I'd have to do interviews. I'd have to dive really deep into technical journals. I might even have to travel. And I didn't have time for any of that. So I scrapped it, moved the idea from the next season pile to the maybe someday pile. And I moved on to the next idea, a simpler story about a man who had a peculiar idea about the shape of the earth and how he ignited a campaign to try to get the U.S. government to send men on a dangerous mission to the Arctic to prove himself right, and how it almost happened. That'll be a fun one, I thought. But as I was researching, I had a queer little thought. Hey, I wonder if anybody else ever got the same idea as this guy. And soon I was waist-deep in stories of various people, some of them kooks, some of them geniuses, who had gone to bat over the centuries for basically the same wackadoo idea. Over and over again, across nearly all of human history, people had stumbled into this same bizarre fallacy. Boy, it was exciting. This little story about a guy with a weird notion was turning out to be a big, huge, sprawling epic. But then my heart fell again. It was too big, too. So that one got tossed into the maybe someday pile. At which point, I took a deep, sighing breath and looked around the maybe-someday pile, at all the stories I dream of telling one day when I've got the time, when I've got the money, when I've got help. There's the book that causes people to kill themselves, the court case where the U.S. government tried to define art. That one's going to take a bunch of actors. Oh, the musical episode. Wouldn't it be cool to make a musical about dinosaur bones? Maybe someday. Looking around at all these exciting projects that I keep having to put off, I got really depressed. The way I've tried to do this show is to make eight episodes in a row, then take four weeks off to research and write, 
then back on with eight more episodes, then four weeks off, then eight weeks again, over and over. But it's too much. It means that I've got to shortchange some stories and nix others. It's not sustainable this way. I realized as I started researching the third project that I had to kick down the road that I had to change how I make this show. So this is the start of a new model. First of all, no more seasons. No more eight weeks on, four weeks off. Instead, the aim is for one episode every two weeks. But there'll be bonus episodes delivered to our secret feed. Follow-ups and bite-sized stories and recordings from live events and stuff in progress and tales that didn't quite fit into the portfolio of getting things wrong, broad as it is. How do you hear these bonus secret feed episodes? By contributing to the Patreon. For just $2 an episode, 4 bucks a month max, you'll get access to the secret feed and all the goodies I store there while helping to build and support this show. If you want to give more, there's more to get. The Patreon link is in the show notes of this very episode you're listening to now. I beseech you to go and check it out. The first Secret Feed episode is up as we speak. You could be listening to it right now if you go and donate to our Patreon. Together, I think we can make this show better and better. Thanks to all of you. All right, on to the episode. Our story ends here. Post-Texas, about 40 miles southeast of Lubbock, just around 250 miles due west from Dallas. It's 1913, and Post is home to roughly a 1,000 people. It looks eerily like a town from an old Western movie, like John Wayne is going to come spur-clotting in with a Stetson and a six-shooter. Look around all you want, you won't notice anything particularly special about Post, Texas. There's a post office, a bank, a school, a dentist, a couple churches, a hotel. On site alone, there's no story to tell about Post, Texas. But be quiet and listen for a moment, and it's a different story. You don't have to be that quiet, actually, because what's happening is pretty loud. Explosion after explosion after explosion. For the last three years, every few minutes, almost every day, one of the richest men in America has been slowly frittering away his fortune on a remarkably weird hobby. Dynamiting the sky. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Snap, Crackle, Boom. Our story ends in post-Texas, but it could begin any number of places. Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, 1863. Springfield, Illinois, 1854. Or Battle Creek, Michigan, 1876. Or... It could begin this morning, at your kitchen table, with this. Your humdrum, run-of-the-mill breakfast cereal. I have an unsavory affection for cereal. Frosted Flakes are my go-to, but I can be persuaded to step out with Honey Nut Cheerios or Cocoa Pebbles or... Uh, 
what are the brown squares called? The ones that seem like they should be healthy, but are actually like shockingly terrible for you? Cracklin' Oat Bran. <laughs> Cracklin' Oat Bran. Oh, man. That poison is delicious. For me, nothing feels more natural than some Saturday morning cartoons with a big bowl of cinnamon toast crunch or two or seven. And that feeling persists, even though I know that the history of breakfast cereal is chock full of 100% of your FDA-recommended daily intake of batshit. It's a story that eventually gets us to a millionaire blowing up the sky. But it starts on October 23rd, 1844, when people all across America were feeling very disappointed. Because yesterday, the world had failed to end. William Miller, a lay Baptist minister and farmer, had assured them it would. He'd spent years decoding the date of the apocalypse, the second coming of Christ. His methodology was uh, a little convoluted. He latched onto a passage in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verse 14. Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Miller believed that the sanctuary in question was the earth. So all it would take to pinpoint the end times was to figure out how to count the dates. Naturally, Miller understood that when the Bible said 2,300 days, it really meant 2,300 years. Because a couple times in the Old Testament, the two are conflated, and obviously we're way past 2,300 days. All right, 2,300 years then, okay. But from when? How about, say, 457 B.C.? Because, ugh. Honestly, if we went all the way through how this was all determined, we'd be here all day, by which I naturally mean all year. The point is, William Miller and his acolytes worked themselves into a conspiratorial, mathematical, dramaturgical tizzy and came up with the date. On April 18th, 1844, Christ would return and the revelation would begin. But then April 18th came and nothing happened. So the Millerites went back to the drawing board. Our mistake, they said. What we meant to say was that the world would end on October 22nd, for real this time. For seven months, thousands of Miller's followers preached the coming end. They formed camps, they gave up their possessions, they abandoned their families and friends, and admonished the skeptical that they were bound for hellfire. Spoiler alert, they were wrong. This was the great disappointment. For months after the apocalypse failed to come to pass, the Millerites were left buoyless, windblown, defeated. They were harassed on the street. People shouted, have you not gone up? Every time they stepped outside. Sometimes the ridicule turned violent. In Toronto, a group of Millerites were tarred and feathered. In Ithaca, their church was burned. In Lorraine, Illinois, a mob attacked a congregation. Aside from these external threats was the internal squabbling. Very quickly, different sects began to form, each with their own explanation or prescription for what had happened or failed to happen in October. Some said that Jesus had returned, but that instead of opening the door to heaven, he'd shut it, and anybody who hadn't expected Armageddon Day was now locked out, doomed to damnation. So laugh it up, hellbound sinners. Some said that Jesus had come to earth, but only so far as the clouds, and was waiting for people to pray hard enough before he'd jump down the rest of the way. Miller himself came to think that he'd been entirely right, 
and that Jesus had returned, but that he had done so invisibly. The world was over, we just couldn't see it. Many followed Miller on this, claiming that they had been saved and no longer should have to go to work. Let the unsaved earn and cook the food. We're saints. One particularly interesting sect of the disappointed looked at Mark 10:15, which reads, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, and concluded that the problem was that they were being too adult. So they started acting like kids. Eventually, though, the bulk of those left behind came to believe that they had misunderstood the meaning of Daniel's sanctuary and said that it wasn't earth that had been cleansed, but heaven itself. October 22nd to these folks represented the date God and Jesus had put aside to clean up and make the place presentable for guests. And thus, Adventism was born. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was founded by Joseph Bates, James White, and crucially, his wife, Ellen White. Ellen was special among the founders because she claimed to receive visions from God, and those visions became, more or less, the bedrock of the church. And one theme that God really hammered home to Ellen in her visions was healthy living. Adventists were warned against alcohol, tobacco, meat, and onanism. Onanism? That sounds familiar. Alexa, who was Onan? Onan was the second son of Judah who God struck dead for refusing to ejaculate into his dead brother's widow. Holy shit! How come I never heard that Bible story before? They tend to skip the parts about spilling semen on the ground in Sunday school, Mark. Yikes! So, onanism meant, broadly, any time a man came anywhere other than in a vagina. But especially, it meant masturbation. With their focus on clean living, good diet, exercise, and abstinence, Adventists began to get into the sanitarium business in the 1860s. The most prominent of these was the Battle Creek Sanitarium, opened in 1866 in Battle Creek, Michigan. Ten years later, John and Will Kellogg were put in charge and quickly built Battle Creek into the premier health facility of the world. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. People from everywhere, including politicians and celebrities, flocked to Battle Creek to recover or improve their health. And what did they do there? A lot of bad science, of course. There was the typical battery of terrible medicine that ruled the late 19th and early 20th centuries, dumping patients in ice water baths, electrocuting them, that kind of fun stuff. Then there were the good, or at least not actively bad, therapies. Patients were urged to exercise, urged to get out into the fresh air, urged to relax. But in addition to all that, there were two areas that Kellogg was obsessed with treating. The genitals and the bowels. Sex, John Kellogg thought, was bad. He lived his whole life without testing this hypothesis, dying a virgin in 1943 at the age of 91. All the more remarkable when you know that he was married in 1879. To Kellogg, 
intercourse, even good, proper, married Christian intercourse, was sinful and bad for the health. But worst of all was that dreaded onanism. Masturbation was the cause of joint pain, acne, fatigue, indecisiveness, mood swings, and even epilepsy, just for starters. Onanism was, said Kellogg, a fatal disease and was quoted, such a victim literally dies by his own hand, which I'm sure he didn't mean to be as funny as it is. To stave off this menace, Kellogg, oh Jesus, this part is awful. Let's read that pun again and try to enjoy ourselves for a brief moment before plunging into the abyss. Ready? A masturbator literally dies by his own hand. Ah, that's great. Anyway, to prevent masturbation, Kellogg developed a patented genital cage to restrict access. He bandaged the hands of adolescent boys and girls. For those still undissuaded, he deployed electrical shock. Oh, we're not done. In the most extreme cases, Kellogg got downright grotesque. For chronic masturbating men, he would take a length of threaded silver and stitch the foreskin closed over the head of the penis, making erection unbelievably painful and ultimately impossible. For a woman, he would apply carbolic acid and burn off her clitoris. Yeah, that's not nearly so funny, huh? Kellogg wrote about these procedures as if he performed them quite commonly, and that, sadly, is probably true. But the main means he deployed to deliver the Onanites from the hand of fate <laughs> was less disturbing. Diet. At the end of the day, the bowels were to blame for everything, Kellogg believed. Not just indigestion or constipation, but cancer, neuropathy, depression, schizophrenia, and yes, sexual deviancy. Credit where credit's due, Kellogg was an early advocate for germ theory when most of his contemporaries were still advocating humoral medicine or homeopathy. But for anything that wasn't pathogenic, Kellogg knew the cause. The colon. Kellogg claimed that 90% of all illness was to do with the stomach or intestines. He prescribed his patients to avoid all spicy food, meat, fat, basically anything flavorful. He encouraged the intake of copious amounts of water on both ends. Yes, what you're thinking. Yes. Not only did he advise people to drink gallon after gallon of water, not a bad idea, but he also employed the irrigator, an enema machine of his own invention that would blast 15 whole gallons through the lower intestine in less than a minute. After all the water was drained out, Kellogg would take a pint of yogurt divide it in half, and give one part by mouth, and the other by rectum. It's possible to squint really, really hard and call Kellogg a pioneer of probiotic medicine, a discoverer of the microbiome. But that's giving more credit than we should. More accurately, Kellogg was an early innovator for fad detox diets. And if that detox failed to work, which of course it usually did because detoxing is bullshit, Kellogg would lace up his surgical scrubs and go to town, removing lengths of intestine on a whim. Kellogg himself reported that he performed on average 20 of these operations a day. Can you believe we're still talking about dynamiting the sky? How is that possible? 
We'll get back to it. First, let's talk about masturbating some more. Like I said, Kellogg figured that the problem of masturbation was basically one and the same as the problems of the bowels. The reason people masturbate, he said, was because their diets were too full of aphrodisiacs. So he set out to invent new foodstuffs that would be good for the health and bad for the libido. Oh, have you figured this out already? Do you see where this is going? Well, fine. That's right. John Harvey Kellogg is the inventor of breakfast cereal. His first creation was a mix of oats and wheat that he baked into a hard cake and then smashed into tiny bits, or granules, which he called granula. But he was sued by James Caleb Jackson, who was already making a dry brand cereal by that name, and Kellogg renamed his creation Granola. Hey mom, are we out of chocolate chip abstinence bars? In 1894, John, his wife Ella, and his brother Will invented cornflakes. Just who did what in the operation is disputed, but somehow Ella and John left out a thin sheet of wheat berry dough overnight. In the morning, John sent it through the roller, and ta-da, cornflakes. For John, cornflakes were the perfect anaphrodisic food. Anaphrodisic. Add that one to your active vocabulary, why don't you? His brother Will saw bigger possibilities. If you added sugar to the cornflakes, you could sell them to people all around the country, not just chronic masturbators. John was aghast. Sugar? Why not replace the milk with whiskey while you were at it? John and Will feuded and fought over the moral abrogation of sweetening cornflakes. Eventually, Will left the sanitarium and opened the Battle Creek Cornflakes Company, which later became the Kellogg Company, i.e., Kellogg's cornflakes. John, on the other hand, kept up his work um, treating the sick. He headed the sanitarium until his death, caring for all walks of people, including Mary Todd Lincoln, President Warren G. Harding, Amelia Earhart, our old pal Henry Ford. But for the sake of this story, Kellogg's most important patient was C.W. Post. But before we talk about that jackass, let's talk about someone who makes good food. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Constant is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers seasonal, simple recipes along with pre-measured ingredients right to your door every week. 
They do all the meal planning, shopping, and prepping so that you can just open up a special insulated box, read an easy, illustrated six-step menu, and prepare scrumptious meals for you and your family in 30 minutes or less with no more than two pots and pans and barely any cleanup. And oh God, I love it. Heather and I are always promising to cook more, but by the time we get home from work, we're often too tired to shop, too overwhelmed to plan, and too hungry to go into a grocery store without accidentally walking out with an industrial-sized box of goldfish and a gallon of tapioca pudding. But with HelloFresh, we're actually making food, and food that's worth eating as opposed to whatever atrocity I would no doubt cook up if left to my own devices. A couple of nights ago, I made zatar crushed grilled cheese with sumac roasted veggies over couscous, and I was so proud of myself that I couldn't wait for Heather to come home and share it with me. Like literally, I couldn't wait. I, I ended up eating almost the entire thing by myself because I am a gluttonous monster. So the lesson is don't be like me. Don't gobble up two very large servings of yummy, fresh-cooked dinner stuffs. Don't bereave your spouse of a well-earned, healthy meal. And don't wait to start HelloFresh a second longer. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash TheConstant80 and enter promo code TheConstant80. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash TheConstant8080 and enter promo code TheConstant80 for $80 off of your first month. That's like getting eight free meals just for listening. Do it, you fools. Back to the show. Charles William Post was born in Springfield, Illinois, in 1854. He worked there manufacturing and selling plows and haystacking machines, and in 1874, married Ella Merriweather, with whom he had a daughter, Marjorie Merriweather Post. It was a good life, up until 1885, when Post had a sudden nervous breakdown and disappeared to Fort Worth, Texas, where he worked in real estate apart from his wife. Post apparently thought that getting away from his old job, his old town, and his old spouse would heal his nervous condition. But it reasserted itself six years later, in 1891, and Post left his second life in pursuit of a cure. Eventually, he made his way to the Battle Creek Sanitarium, under the care of John Harvey Kellogg. Post was so impressed by Kellogg's techniques that he decided to start a cereal company of his own. In 1895, he opened two businesses, the Post Cereal Company, with his flagship creation, Postum, which I'm happy to say I've never tasted. Post designed Postum as a coffee substitute, a way to replace the scourge of caffeine with the fortifying benefits of milled grains made from roasted wheat bran and molasses. Postum was a huge hit, in part because the country was experiencing a fad hysteria against caffeine, and in part because of Post's ruthless marketing. The slogan for Postum was, There's a Reason, and it appeared in full-page advertisements throughout the country, along with warnings of the dangers of coffee. You'll go blind! And making dubious promises about the curative power of wheat bran water. Postum got a bit of trouble when a number of competitors entered the market in the early aughts. Postum started losing market share, so Post released a new product, Monk's Brew, which was the exact same product as Postum, but sold so cheaply that the company took a loss on each sale. 
the Post Cereal Company ate the expense for a year until they had effectively killed off the competition. Then, they discontinued Monk's Brew and left Postum to rule the roost of coffee substitutes. Post's other business was La Vita Inn, his own sanitarium. Where? Right across the way from Battle Creek. Post partially credited John Kellogg with saving his life, so how did he pay him? Opening a competing business next door and undercutting his price. He could do that, because while Kellogg's sanitarium might have been quackery, it was expensive quackery. Post, on the other hand, based his on the power of positive thinking, which has significantly less overhead than enema machines. Two years after Postum hit the streets, Post took on the other Kellogg directly, revealing his own breakfast cereal. Post baked a wheat barley batter into a rock-hard sheet, and then he broke it up into pieces like Breaking Bad meth. Finally, he ran the shards of shattered barley through a coffee grinder. He called this new product Grape Nuts. After the fruity sweetness, it absolutely does not fucking possess. Still, for reasons almost impossible to fathom, Grape Nuts was a hit. Post marketed it as a health food and a miracle cure. He claimed it cured malaria, heart disease, rickets, and TB. He planted ads that looked like news stories, including one entitled How Food Works, A Sure Way Out of Bowel Troubles. As How Food Works explains, years of white bread and potatoes cause their eaters to suffer from septic appendicitis, which has only one perfect remedy. Grape nuts. In 1907, Collier's Weekly ran an article second-guessing that claim, so Post bought up column inches around the country saying that Collier's was running a smear campaign against him because he'd refused to purchase ads with them, and calling the author of the investigation a moron. So Collier's sued Post for libel, saying not only that his claims against them were false, but that all of the claims in his Grape Nuts and Postum ads were false too. Collier's won, and Post was ordered to pay up 50 grand. The truth was, Grape Nuts only ever cured one person. C.W. Post. It turned out his nervous problems needed just one thing. Tons and tons of money. His wife, Ella, who had put up with him even when he'd fled to Texas without her, who'd cared for him during his long and awful convalescence at Battle Creek, Post dropped her like a hot bowl of grape nuts in 1904 and ran off with his 27-year-old secretary, Layla Young, who he married a month later. According to their daughter Marjorie, Ella died of a broken heart within the year. But what did Post care? He was rich and getting richer. He reinvested his earnings into Texas real estate, and soon he was one of the wealthiest men in America. What did he do with all that money? He bought a city. In 1907, he laid out what became Post-Texas, a town he hoped would be a model utopia, a beacon unto the rest of the world, saying, look how perfect things could be if you just let me run everything. In his new town, Post planted trees and tilled soil, believing that he could change the weather, as we talked about back in our Season 3 episode, Make It Rain. And it's when all that failed that Post began dynamiting the sky. On July 1st, 1863, 
Confederate General Robert E. Lee's forces met Union Major General George Meade's Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. On July 2nd, Lee led a full-bore attack at Little Round Top, and the Union sustained heavy losses. On July 3rd, 12,500 Confederate infantrymen rushed the center of the Union line at Cemetery Ridge in what came to be called Pickett's Charge. The Union line held. The Confederate army was routed. The tide of the war was turned and more than 46,000 American soldiers were killed. Then, on July 4th, it rained. It rained the day after the Battle of Bethel in East Virginia, too, and after the Battle of Greenbrier, and after the First Battle of Bull Run, after the capture of Roanoke Island, after the capture of Fort Macon, and the capture of New Madrid, Missouri, and so on and so forth. This, according to General Edward Powers, was not a coincidence. In his 1871 book, War and the Weather, he laid out a grand buffet of anecdotal evidence suggesting that where men warred, rain soon followed. And why? Powers argued that the concussive force and sound of explosions, of cannon fire and gunshots, had jostled the rain from the clouds. Powers convinced Congress to appropriate 10 grand to test his hypothesis, and on August 17, 1891, a group of scientists and military minds made their way to Midland, Texas, with hundreds of pounds of dynamite, along with kites and helium balloons. Twelve hours after the first round of kited dynamite, or dynamited kites, which makes more sense. Anyway, it began to rain. Four days later, they set off 156 pounds of explosives. And several hours later, mist settled over Midland. Three days later, they made their third experiment, firing off explosions all day. At 3 a.m., the crew was awoken by the sound of thunder and lightning, off to the north. To this, Robert G. Dyronforth, a patent lawyer who had volunteered to head up the expedition, said, Close enough! and stamped the whole endeavor as a huge success. On the other hand, George Curtis, a meteorologist for the Smithsonian, wrote an article for Nature that ended, It is scarcely necessary for me to state that these experiments have not afforded any scientific standing to the theory that rainstorms can be produced by concussions. Largely speaking, people agreed with Curtis. Not many took powers in dry and forced side, but some did. And the believers funded further experiments, which Dyronforth also claimed were successful. But by some wacky coincidence, all of Dyronforth's experiments had been held on days where meteorologists had already predicted rainfall. That's a tiny bit suspicious, huh? As for Powers, he was half right about rain following battles. There is evidence that this happens, and Powers wasn't the first person to notice. Napoleon had made the same observation 60 years before him. And Plutarch had, too, 1,800 years before Napoleon. Of course, there were no explosions at the battles Plutarch would have seen. So what could be the actual explanation? Pretty simple, really. Armies don't like fighting in the rain. 
so they tend to try to get things over with before the weather turns. Mystery solved. But not for CW Post. This concussive theory of rain was never popular or widespread, like Rain Follows the Plow had been. And by 1910, almost nobody believed in it. But almost nobody didn't include old Chucky Post, the philandering, union-busting flim-flammer who had to build a city so he would have someone to rule over. For whatever reason, Post was heartily, concretely, unpersuadably convinced of Power's theory. And he was willing to spend however much money it cost and however much time it took to prove it. And so, starting in 1911, the sky was full of exploding balloons and the hills were full of cannons as Charles William Post bombarded his would-be utopia with thundering chaos. His family, friends, employees, and residents were urged to ignore the rainless days and play up the stormy ones, encouraging Post and saying he was right, the bombs were working. Nobody could tell Post to stop. Nobody could call him out on his bullshit because they were all either afraid of him or wanted something from him. So days turned to weeks, Weeks turned to months, and months turned to years. Boom, boom, boom. Wow, that's great, Dad. Good work, boss. You were right, CW. It might have gone on forever, or until Post managed to spend himself out. But he had an intense stomach pain, and it was getting worse. In March of 1914, Post took a train to Rochester, Minnesota, to see doctors William and Charles Mayo. But the Mayos apologized and said there was nothing they could do. It was too late. Post returned home, despondent and suffering. On May 9, 1914, one final explosion was heard. From the gun Post was holding against his head. With no cure in sight, Charles William Post exited this world of his own accord, rather than live to succumb to his disease. Appendicitis. Should've eaten your grape nuts, Chuck. Music for this week's episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Lee Rosevear. As always, I want to invite you to rate and review the show, find us on Facebook and Twitter, but especially, once again, to take a look at the new Patreon page and consider supporting the show. You'll find the link in the show notes. Thanks for coming on this new leg of The Constance Journey with me. I'll see you in two weeks. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, home to Quaker Oats, who in 1902 began giving away small tracts of land in every box until... Oh, there's not enough time for me to tell this story in an episode tag. Guess that means I'll have to make another bonus episode for the new Patreon secret feed. See you there soon. Should've eaten your grape nuts, Chuck. 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 (laughs) Surely one of those will be useful. (laughs) 